I'm so glad to be worshiping with everybody that's here in the worship center, all of you that are online with us, everybody that's in the chapel. If we've not had a chance to meet, my name is Merle, and uh, I am super excited about our next-gen ministry and what is going on there. Uh, Why don't we join together one more time in thanking our staff and our ministry partners for leading so faithfully and so well. I was uh, was at a... uh, dinner club meeting last night with some friends, and we had a question that we asked around the table about a favorite summertime memory in all of our life, and uh, there were a number of the folks around the table that talked about how significant church camp was, whether they were a child or whether they were a student, and life-transforming decisions were made, and we know that that happened here uh, at Eagle Lake as well as Summerfest. We can't do it without ministry partners. We can't do it without, uh, without financial resources. Thank you so much for your generosity to the life and ministry of the church. Some of you are new, wonder, how can I go about giving? We make it pretty easy. You can give online. You can mail in. We've got giving boxes that are at the back of the worship center as well as as you exit. And so uh, as God has blessed you, we encourage you to pass on the blessing to other people. So, a uh, little, bit, little bit sad, because on Thursday, we had to uh, put our uh, son and daughter-in-law and grandson on a plane at uh, around 4.30 in the morning, and, uh, and they packed everything that they had here in the States, and they had already shipped their stuff from Romania, and they're moving to Bangkok, and we were waiting to, to know if they were ever going to get there 34 hours later. They uh, finally get there. They wanted to know if we're going to come visit. And after they told me 34 hours, I said, well, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe a Skype call is good enough. Maybe it's good enough. But anyway, I had such a great time with them in our home and uh, just so full of uh, of grandson life. And we already missed the early morning wake-ups. And uh, hey, G-Pops, will you play cars with me? Of course, I'll play cars with you. And so, but we were coming back. And so I'm going to tell you a true story. We were coming back from the airport. I was driving into our neighborhood and I saw some people out running. And I thought, Oh, good Lord, why are you out running at 4.45 in the morning? And then I realized, well, it's, you know, about 100 degrees, and so they went out to to run early. But this is what happened to me. I saw this individual, and this was an individual that I know, and this is an individual who had um, kind of not treated me well. And so when I saw them, uh, I had certain feelings. And I'm, I'm not proud of the feelings. And so when I came back, uh, one of the things I do in the morning as a part of my kind of uh, rule of life is I like to get up very early when it's dark, go out on our screened-in porch with a cup of coffee and just listen to birds. And I just sit there in silence and uh, wait for the Lord to come to me and to just be in silence before Him. And then the thought of this person and then the thought of several other people who I didn't feel had done me right in some things started occupying my mind. And then I had this thought, how petty of me, how petty of me. Um, Some of these guys, I blocked their 
cell phone number from my phone. How petty. How petty. And I thought to myself, well, isn't the Lord always good about bringing to mind my failures and my weaknesses the week that I'm going to preach on a certain topic? And so, uh, if you've ever taught Sunday school or a Bible study, you know this is true, right? Oftentimes, you're getting ready to teach something, and then you are confronted with the very thing that you need to learn. And so, that's what happened to me this week. And I'm going to get to where we're going. Let me just say this. Uh, this past week, I read and watched a, uh, the address from Arthur C. Brooks, who is a college professor and a sociologist, that he gave at the President's Prayer Breakfast in uh, 2020. And he said at this particular prayer breakfast that he considered the number one crisis facing our country and other countries around the world to be the crisis of polarization. And then he used this word. It's the crisis of contempt. And so he said, what is going on in our particular culture and what's the challenge in our culture is that contempt is the problem. If you were to boil it all down to what is going on uh, in our culture, there is a spirit of contempt. Now, what is contempt? John Gottman is the preeminent marriage researcher that everybody quotes when they want good research on marriage. And one of the things that Gottman has discovered is this. The number one predictor of divorce is contempt in a relationship. And one of the folks that works with him said contempt is this. Let me read it to you. Contempt comes from a place of superiority and makes other people feel inferior. I want you to just pause for a minute and think about relationships that you have. You can think about the general kind of spirit in our culture, but I want you to think about relationships where you've struggled from time to time. Think about your marriage. Think about a relationship with your parents, your kids, coworkers, whatever it might be. Contempt comes from a place of superiority and makes the other feel inferior deep down it stems from a sense of feeling unappreciated and unacknowledged in a relationship. It can take the form of verbal or nonverbal language, which can include sarcasm, mockery, and facial gestures like the rolling of the eyes or... <sighs> Gottman also discovered that people who live in a constant state of contempt in relationships are much more likely to have immune, autoimmune challenges. They're more likely statistically to have colds and different kinds of ailments because they live in a context where contempt is present, where somebody is made to feel inferior by somebody else's superiority. So Arthur Brooks says, the crisis in our culture is that there is this spirit of contempt 
that is going on. And then he goes on to say this. He says, most of us know that where there is an old problem, the solution never comes from just thinking harder in old ways. Solutions only come when we think differently. And so he tells the story. He says, uh, he and his wife were attending a parent-teacher conference for their middle son, Carlos. And it was a rough conference because, once again, Carlos was struggling with his grades, and they had done all kinds of things to help him with his grades. And so the old problem of grades, they tried everything in an old way, just harder, and it wasn't getting them anywhere. And so they left the conference kind of in grim silence. They got in the car, they were driving back home, and then finally Brooke's wife, Esther, broke the silence. And she said to him, Arthur, we need to see this problem in a whole new way. And he said, I'm all ears, sweetheart, because I am at the end of my rope. And then she said, at least we know he is not cheating. <laughs> That's thinking differently, right? Old problem, thinking about it in, in a new way. So, what is a new way of thinking about the old problem of contempt that exists in our relationships if we want our relationships to be better? And so let me tell you what the answer is not. The answer is not working harder at being tolerant of one another. Now, being tolerant is a whole lot better than being intolerant, but how much has tolerance really helped us diffuse the fuse that is burning with contempt? And it's not just enough to be civil. It's important to be civil. Civility is so much better than incivility, but tolerance and civility will not solve the problem of relationships that are marked by contempt and polarization and anger. They're important, but let me just say this. Tolerance and civility are low bar expectations. Low bar. Really low bar. Jesus expects something so much more from his people who have stepped into the kingdom of God by faith and who have the kingdom of God and the king in our lives. He expects so much more. So we're in this series called Jesus Says, and we're looking at what Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus is talking about a greater kind of rightness that we are to live in this world based upon being made right with God. You've heard me say he's talking about living a life that flourishes, where you're so filled with God that your life is fruitful and your life is fulfilled. And if there's any area in our life that we want to be fulfilled and we want to flourish, it's in relationships, right? We want them to grow and we want them to be healthy. If you missed any of the messages, just go to pleasantvalley.org and you can catch them there. So what is Jesus' response to a world of contempt? So check this out. Contempt is the problem and love is the solution. Now I want you to hold on to that because 
I don't want you to think about love in just the way that we think about love. We're going to think about love in the way that Jesus talks about love. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 48. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same thing? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Contempt is the problem. Love is the solution. Let's go back to verse 43 for a minute. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemy. Now, love your, love your neighbor, <clears throat> you can find a specific biblical reference for that. It's probably going back to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where it says, do not take revenge or bear grudge against members of your community. That would be your neighbor. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But what about the phrase, you've heard it said, love your enemies and hate. I mean, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Is there a specific place in the Bible where God's people are commanded to go out and hate their enemy? And the answer is no. There's no command where we're to go and hate our enemy. Now, God hates evil. That's a central theme in the Old Testament. Consequently, people who embodied evil were understood to be God's enemies, and it was natural to hate God's enemies, but hating an enemy in terms of the Old Testament because they were enemies of God is not the same as God saying, I command you to hate your enemy. So, the Jews were commanded, love your neighbors. In other words, what does that mean? They were commanded to love people like them. Love other Jews. And love them the way you would want to be loved. But, Jesus wants something more than that. Most all of us are committed to loving people like us, right? You, you love people who are like you. You love people that vote the same way you do, who believe the same thing as you do, who take care of their property the way that you take care of your property, who like barbecue like you like barbecue, who love the tigers the way you love the Mizzou tigers. It's easy to love people who, for the most part, love what we do and will love us in return. But here's the point. Love of neighbor is good, but it's not enough to defeat contempt. That's what Jesus is saying. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but I'm going to tell you something that is different. I want you to not only love your neighbor, but I want you to love your enemy as well. Loving people who love us back is no big deal. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not really a big deal. It isn't radical. It doesn't set the children of God apart from anybody else in the world who has no faith in Jesus at all. 
It's just what everybody commonly does. And Jesus is wanting us to think differently so that we will act differently. Love of neighbor is required to defeat contempt. Love of enemy is required to defeat contempt. Say that with me. Love of enemy is required to defeat contempt. So let's start answering some questions. Who is an enemy? Now we're going to talk about who your enemy is in just a minute, but who is an enemy? Based on what Jesus is saying, it's a person who opposes you. It's a person who has hurt you or tries to hurt you. It's a person who is opposed to righteousness or the ways of God. It's a person who doesn't love you. Okay, now let's get real specific. Who is your enemy? And some of you are saying, I don't have any enemies. And what I want to say to you is Jesus makes an assumption that we have enemies. When he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The assumption is, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a human being, you're going to have people that are your enemies. So who is your enemy? Who is the person who has treated you with contempt? Who is the person that you have felt contempt for? Who is the person that you just like roll your eyes over? Who is the person when they start talking, you just go like, <sighs> and who has done that to you? Where is it that there is this kind of sandpaper kind of relationship? Who is it? Maybe it's the parent who abandoned you, and you feel that there is this enmity that exists between you. Maybe it was a sibling who abused you or a business partner who deceived you and did you wrong in the business, a fiancé who at the last minute broke off an engagement, an ex-spouse who has turned child custody into an absolute nightmare, in-laws who never think that you ever do anything good enough or maybe a bully at school or a bully online. We could go through a list. We all have someone that there is the struggle to actually do what Jesus said. Jesus seems like, would you agree, that he is a utopian dreamer. He's a utopian dreamer when he says, love your enemies and pray for them. It just, doesn't it sound like pipe dream? Who does that? Nobody's going to do that. Martin Luther King Jr. says Jesus was not a utopian dreamer. He wasn't an idealist, but he was a practical realist. And this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of civilization. Jesus knew what he was talking about. Jesus, the wisest person in the world, Jesus is never going to tell us to do something that he's not going to empower us to pull off. Jesus is letting us know that love is the only way. Love of enemy is the only way to defeat contempt. So what does it mean to love an enemy? That's what we should be thinking. What does it mean to love, to love an enemy? For most of us, to love somebody is to have a certain kind of feeling. In our culture, that's the way we think about love. You go to a movie, and what are they trying to do? They're trying to incite emotions as we watch people 
express feelings towards each other, and they want to they want to bring out feelings towards us. Feelings are important, but when Jesus is talking about love, he's not talking about have really good feelings about the people who have abused you, who have opposed you, who have hurt you. Jesus is not saying, I want you to feel these certain things for them. The word love refers to an action, not a feeling. And if you're taking notes, you ought to write this down. To love is to will the good of another. To love, when Jesus says love your enemies, is to will the good of another. It is to will the highest and best for them, even though you don't necessarily feel the kind of feelings that we equate with love. And I know that this seems impossible because you're thinking what I have thought. I can never love a person who hurts me. I can never love a person who has said all kinds of bad things about me. I never can feel like loving the person who has taken advantage of me. But Jesus didn't say, feel. He wants us to act. And for some of you, that's like opened up a insight for you that maybe you've never thought of before. You've thought that you need to feel something before you can do something. And the truth is Jesus is saying when it comes to people that you consider an enemy, will their good. And where does Jesus come up with this? Well, Jesus grounds this kind of love your enemy command in the universal love that God has for all human beings. When he says in verse 45, for God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The spirit of God, the love of God is a universal kind of love for humanity and Jesus is grounding this call to love our enemy based in this universal kind of love. But let me just ask you this question. What is the nature of God's love? When you think about the love of God, what is the nature of God's love? Let me get you to think about this. The nature of God's love is love of enemy. The nature of God's love is love for the enemy. Does God just love lovable people? And the answer is, the answer is, does God just love good people? Does God love only people who will love him in return? No. The nature of God's love is enemy love because here's the truth. We were all enemies of God at one time, but he loved us still. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Paul says it this way. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? We were all at one time God's enemies. We were opposed to him. And God, in love for the enemy, sent his son, Jesus, through his death and resurrection he has brought us into life with God, those of us who trust in him. So what Jesus is doing is he is asking us to love as we have been loved. So let me ask you this. Aren't you glad God doesn't just tolerate you? 
For while we were enemies, we were tolerated by God. For if while we were enemies, we were just treated civilly by God. There's got to be more than God just putting up with us. There's got to be more than God just being, you know, saying nice things about us. It's while we were enemies, we were reconciled. We were made right with God, not by what we did, but why Christ did. It is a radical kind of love. Not any kind of love can bring transformation to a world that is in the crisis of contempt or in the grip of contention. Not any kind of love will do it. It requires a God love, which is a love of enemy. And what does Jesus say? He says, one of the ways that we love our enemies is that we pray for them. We pray for them. And you might be thinking, that's not a big deal. If loving is willing the good for another person, what greater good can we do for a person who is opposed to us than to bring that person to a God who is for them? To ask God to bless the person who has cursed us, to pray God's favor on the person who would never consider us one of their favorites. Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, pray for those who persecute you. He practiced the very thing he taught. Remember, while Jesus was being nailed to the cross, you can read this, Luke 23, 34, what did Jesus pray? Being nailed on a cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence the prayer of the Lord Jesus... For his enemies, what pain or what pride could ever justify silencing my prayer for the people who have done me wrong? I believe the, the reason that Jesus expects us to pray for our enemies is that he knows you can't genuinely, genuinely pray for a person and continue to hate them. I challenge you to do that. I challenge you. What I did on that early Thursday morning after I was confronted with my pettiness over some people who did me wrong was that I simply just said, God, forgive me for being so petty when you have forgiven so much in my life. I pray that you would cause these individuals to prosper in all that you have for them. I pray, that they would, I pray that they would meet your favor and your goodness in their lives. God, would you bless their family? God, would you bless their health and their finances and their relationships? And you just begin to pray for them, and then it, it causes whatever the feelings are that we have, that you can't, in a spirit of humility, maintain a spirit of animosity when you pray for people. You can't do it. So let me just ask you, who do you need to pray for today? Who do you need to express the love of God for by bringing this person into the presence of the very one 
who has enemy love. We love our enemies by, be, by doing good to them as well, without expecting anything into return, in return. So let's say somebody did you wrong in the marketplace. Let's say somebody stole the sale from you. Let's say somebody spoke bad about you. Let's say that there were office politics and you were on the receiving end of rumor in office politics. What would be something good you could do for that person in the name of Jesus without expecting anything in return? You're not doing it to be noticed. You're simply doing it. Jesus put it like this. Similar passage to the one that we've just been studying. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend the, uh, to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do what is good. Lend and expect nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for He is gracious and un, uh, gracious to the ungrateful and the evil. What does love of enemy look like if not doing good for people without any expectation in return? If it's not praying for them in a spirit of humility that God would favor and bless their life? When we live in the love of God, and the love of God is living and producing His will through us, these are the kind of things that will mark who we are as people. And it won't be so much things that we go and do. It will be what it is that is simply flowing out of our lives because we have been pursuing this God of love. Did a wedding not too long ago, and oftentimes at weddings, we quote the love chapter. Because we're talking about this love commitment between a man and a woman, and we love to quote 1 Corinthians 13 to talk about that kind of love. What would happen if you and I, instead of just leaving this passage for marriage, we actually brought this passage into the circumstances where we are having difficulty with other people, and we said, God, would you let this flow from my life? 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to put a parenthesis right here. Love for your enemy is patient, is kind, does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. Love for the enemy finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And Jesus is saying this, when we love our enemies with a kind of God love for enemies, when we pray for them who are doing us wrong, when we do good without any expectation in return, what we are doing is we are actually fulfilling God's purpose for our lives as followers of Jesus. Where would I come up with that? If you look at Matthew 5, 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, what happens is perfectionists read this, and they go, okay, I'm supposed to be perfect, and so they find themselves driven by a misinterpretation of a text. This isn't about being a perfectionist and never doing anything that is flawed. That's not what Jesus is saying. 
this word perfect doesn't mean without flaw the way that we think about perfection. So let me give you an image. So whenever you take a screwdriver, and a screwdriver is screwing in a screw, that screwdriver is perfect because it is doing what it was created to do. Now, if you take a screwdriver and you use it as a hammer, it is not perfect because it wasn't designed to be a hammer, although I have done that many times when I can't find a hammer. But a screwdriver is perfect when it is fulfilling the purpose for which it was made, and that is to screw in a screw. In the same way, followers of Jesus are perfect in the sense we are fulfilling our purpose when we love our enemies and we pray for them. We're fulfilling our purpose. We're being perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. What did the Heavenly Father do? He had love for enemies. Jesus prayed for enemies to return evil for good is the way of the devil to return good for good is the way of man but to return good for evil is the way of our heavenly father and Jesus is saying when we live this kind of life what's happening then is that we're giving testimony we're giving witness to who we truly are verse 44 and 45, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. A new relationship with God creates a new relationship with yourself, which creates a new relationship with your neighbor and your enemies. We don't love enemies and pray for them so that we can eventually become the children of God. We do that because we already are. And when we love our enemies, when we pray for them, when we do good to them without any thought of anything in return, what we are doing is we are saying that we have been possessed by a better way that we have begun a new way of thinking that has led into a new way of acting. We do it because it is the better way. Love is the better way. To hate instead of love is to fuel the flame of contempt. To hate instead of love is to destroy the hater more than the one hated. When you hate Martin Luther King Jr. said, you can't see straight. And when you hate, you cannot think right. And when you hate, you cannot receive grace. Jesus didn't teach us to love and pray for our enemies just for their good. He's teaching us to love and pray for our enemies for our own good. It is for our good because it keeps us from becoming the enemy. It keeps us from becoming people who have a spirit of contempt. It keeps us from being eroded from the inside out. Chronic anger, according to research, can be more destructive to your life than somebody who smokes a pack of cigarettes every single day or who is obese. 
Research says when you maintain a spirit of contempt and chronic anger in your life, you're destroying yourself. Jesus doesn't want us to live that way. It's not good for others, and it's certainly not good for you. Let us pursue the way of love as God in his love has pursued us. Our world is choking on contempt. Our world is drowning in polarization and it is waiting. It is waiting for sons and daughters of a God who loves enemy to arise, to show up on the scene, to bear witness, to build bridges to the hearts of neighbors and enemies rather than erecting walls of polarization, and division. We've got, a, we've got a high, high mark that has been given to us. And in the power of Jesus, we can pull that off as well. The question is, are we willing? Are we willing to do that? Who will be the first person to say, I'll risk an arm. I will risk I will take the first step. I'm going to be the one to be a child of God in the midst of a world that needs somebody to show up and say, there is a better way. The crisis can be brought to a solution and a close, but it's got to start with me. This is what I know. In a marriage relationship or any relationship, it's always the stronger person who takes the first step. If I'm waiting for somebody to step towards me and to love me and to pray for me, I'm demonstrating that I'm the weaker. But we've never been intended to be weak. We are more than conquerors in Christ who loves us, so let's be the ones who take the first step. I want to pray with you, and then I want to share with you some announcements, so let's pray together. God, uh, you have loved us when we were at odds with you. You, you don't tolerate us. You reconciled us. You love us. You have willed what is good for us, and you did what is good for us. When we could not save ourselves, you sent your son to die for us in our place and on our behalf so that through faith in him, we could be living in right relationship with you now and for all eternity, and we are grateful for that. Thank you that you took the risk. Thank you that you risk hands and arms and feet and body on a cross for us. God, would you give us that same kind of spirit? Would you help us to be willing to die to ourselves in order that the love of Christ might rise from our lives? And I pray this in the name of Jesus. And if you agree, would you say amen?